This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, yes. Welcome everybody to another summer series episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. Thank you, everyone, for joining us once again. My name is Elon Dubrovsky, and with me is the fantasy hockey robot who's going to be in full form this week. I've seen his research notes. Brian Kahn. Hey, Elon. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be here. (laughs) Well, Brian, I'm not sure if we'd be able to do a show without you. I mean, I guess I could pontificate about all of these players, but I feel like people probably want a little more, and we're going to give it to them. The talk of the town for this show is going to be, once again, players who had disappointing seasons, and we want to know if we should expect that to continue, or whether or not it was maybe just a one-time thing. Yeah, so we are. We're looking at that one bad year that a player had this past season that might have cost their fantasy owner quite a bit, and then we're looking to see if it fits neatly within that downward slope that we might expect from a player's career arc or if it really was a one-off anomaly and that we should sort of expect the player to bounce back for next season. Okay, and before we get into the players we have on tap for today, Brian, why don't you give a quick update for our playoff pool? You know, it's the kind of thing where at the start of the playoffs, everyone's all excited about the Keeping Carlson playoff pool because everyone's in it, everyone has a chance, they all think they've picked the players on the teams that are going to make it, but now it's pretty much just the players who had the Chicago, Anaheim, Tampa, and Rangers players And who are the people who have broken ahead? Yeah, it definitely comes down to your playoff prediction abilities at this point. Whoever has the most players left is going to be near the top. But Stagold Ponyboy is holding steady in first place with just eight players remaining compared to Don't Tavares Me Bro, who is in second with 10 players remaining. But the gap is pretty large. Stagold Ponyboy has a 12-point lead, which really, like, as you go through the standings, that gap between first and second is probably the biggest gap between any two ranks. So it seems like Stagold Ponyboy is running away with the title. Yeah, taking a quick look, it seems like the extra players that Don't Tavares Me Bro has are Brandon Saad and Victor Hedman, who are very good, but I don't think in like four or five games, the two of them are going to make up that much of a difference. I think that Stay Gold Pony Boy is going to be the one winning a year of free, keeping Carlson patronage and all the benefits that come with that. But don't embarrass me, bro. Might be the lucky guy who I will be mailing my big book of hockey fun <laughs> to. 
And so who knows, maybe that's actually the better prize, but it is a mint condition hockey news big book of hockey fun that will be mailed to second place. That <laughs> some guy gave to you at a party once, asked if you like hockey, and you said yes. Stop Stammer Time's got a shot, though. Just one point back of that coveted big book of hockey fun. All right, so before we start losing listeners, let's get into the actual content for the episode. I wanted to start with a guy who was drafted in a lot of pools in like the second or third round, so a huge disappointment. I'm talking about Chris Kunitz on the Penguins. Back in the lockout shortened season, he really emerged as a premier fantasy hockey option. He had 52 points in 48 games, which was unbelievable. Then the season after that, 2013-2014, not too shabby either, 68 points in 78 games, so over a 70-point pace. So he seemed like a really reliable pick. Of course, playing with Crosby, you can't complain, but somehow last season he ended up with only 40 points in 74 games. So if you drafted him with your second or third pick in your pool and only got 40 points out of him, that must have been a huge, huge disappointment. And it's not as if Crosby and Malkin had bad seasons, right? Like, they both were at their point-per-game pace, but somehow Kunitz fell off completely. Was it because he just wasn't playing with the good players anymore, or was he playing with the good players, but somehow couldn't put up the same numbers as before? Is he just not that good? Was it a fluke the last couple of seasons? Brian, what do you have to tell me about Chris Kunitz? What a barrage of questions to get into it, and I hope that I can at least touch on all of them, and I'll get to line mates at the very end. We'll see who he was playing with and how that might have affected him. But first off, just to really put into context how poor his season was, he had just seven even-strength goals this year, and that ranked him ninth just amongst Penguins forwards. So that means Nick Spalding, Brandon Sutter, and Steve Downey all had more goals at even-strength, and those three guys plus Bo Bennett were better than Kunitz at turning ice time into goals at even strength. So that is, like, embarrassing for Chris Kunitz, who is supposed to be, you know, a top three, top four guy on the team. But at even strength, it just wasn't happening for him this year. And it wasn't just his goal scoring itself that was down. His point scoring overall definitely took a hit. He finished the year ranked 207th out of 262 forwards, who had played more than 750 minutes this year at even strength. That is not at all pretty. You look at the names around there and you have like Tommy Wingles and Antoine Roussel. And if you compare where those guys went in your fantasy draft and where Kunitz went, you know, they, they should not be close to each other in that metric at the end of the season. So if you were banging your head against the wall all season with Chris Kunitz, you were right to do so. That was justified. And I hope your head is okay. <laughs> and just to poo-poo him even more... If you're looking at his point totals, you might not even be getting at how bad he was because really when you draft someone, you want them to help you near the end of the season in the fantasy hockey playoffs. He had his worst months at the end. Three points in 15 games in March and then zero points in six games in April. So he totally did just literally nothing for his fantasy owners when it mattered most. Yeah, over the last 20 games, he was pretty much useless. Like you should have dropped him, of course, You might have been expecting that outburst, as I think a lot of us were, but it never came, and it probably hurt you. And, you know, as they often do, shots are going to tell the story about how Kunitz's year went wrong. It's not that he took significantly fewer shots than he's used to taking. In fact, his numbers were kind of on the lowish end of his career, but 
nothing startlingly low, like not setting career lows or really like obscene drops in shot taking. It's actually that the shots that he was taking were coming from further away compared to the ones that he took in his fantastic breakthrough 2013-14 season. And perhaps it was this that contributed to his incredibly low 5-on-5 shooting percentage. When you take a look at a heat map that compares his shot-taking locations from the past two seasons, you can see a movement away from the slot in high-danger areas, and his average shot distance reflects that. This year, his average shot distance was about 5 feet further away from the net than it was in the season before. This doesn't even all explain away why Kunitz was not even shooting 6% at even strength last season, and that's pretty much his recent season numbers cut in half, and that is a ridiculous drop to go from like a 12 or 13% shooting percentage down to a 6%, but maybe the shot location explains a small bit of it. And I don't think I need to really remind everybody here that a drop that big is unlikely to sustain itself. There is quite a bit of variance amongst shot percentage rates from season to season, and there's no reason to think that Kunitz's shot-taking skill has totally disappeared. I expect it'll bounce back a little bit. Aside from that, is there any reason to still have faith in Chris Kunitz going into next year? He's going to turn 37 during the preseason, and my answer is yes. There is a reason, and actually there are two, maybe three reasons. The first reason, and the biggest one, is that his possession numbers were actually some of the best of his career. So he didn't at all struggle to get the puck and put pucks towards the net while he was on the ice, and that means he still got the basic groundwork in place for getting back to scoring goals and points. The second reason is that his power play numbers look pretty normal compared to the rest of his career, And we know, looking at how players age, that power play numbers can sustain themselves a little longer than even strength numbers. So it's not a huge reason to feel great, but it is still something that Kunitz was still able to score goals on the power play. His touch did not disappear there. And the third point, though I'm not sure exactly how to interpret this, Elon, I wonder if you have any ideas. His primary assist rate held steady. So the amount of times that he was the first assist on a goal scored was really similar to previous seasons when you control for ice time. Okay, that's interesting. So I guess that's the harder type of assist to get. So maybe you could say that if his assists were all becoming secondary assists, then you could more likely expect that to be luck that could go away. But this is more something that takes skill. Yeah, I think that is the takeaway here. The secondary assist, there's a lot more luck and variance involved. The primary assist is probably the one that you can count on to see if a player really is helping create goals on his team, and it looked like Kunitz was still doing just that. So these three notions together, especially the point about puck possession, paint a picture of a soon-to-be 36-year-old, not 37, I think I said that earlier, who still has gas in the tank. It's tempting to think that Kunitz's shooting futility could be a sign to come of like a downward trend in his career, But this season's drop was too severe to fit into that gentler downward slope that we would expect to see as a player ages and gets towards the end of his career. So Brian, all of that said, I still do think it would be worth it to delve into the line mate issue a little bit. Because the thing with Pittsburgh is if he's not playing with Crosby or Malkin, I think we could be safe to say that we won't expect him to be able to even nearly approach the numbers he's put up in the past. 
Do you have any notions of whether he'll still have that prime spot next year? Honestly, I don't see why not. He and Crosby have been a duo for quite a while now. And this year, the big change was having Nick Spalling and Blake Como enter their rotation as being that third line mate. Maybe if the Penguins figure out how to get a better option up there with them, Kunitz will benefit from that. I don't think it'll get any worse in terms of line mates for him. And one thing about him is that no matter who he played with, they actually seem to get better while playing with him. They had better possession numbers playing with Kunitz than without him in most cases. And again, that goes back to how good he was at driving play last year. I would also maybe think, just looking at their depth chart, like a healthy Patrick Hornquist must be able to help a bit. It really sucked how he was out all the time. Maybe I noticed it more so because I owned him in my league. But if they could get the Kunitz-Crosby-Hornquist line buzzing, I can't imagine he's going to get 40 points again. So it sounds like you're saying, you know, don't expect him to be a superstar. He is getting older. Like, probably the 70 points is a bit high to expect that he had the year before. But you do expect him to do better than 40 and maybe land around 60, 65? Or do you think 70 is even still possible? I'm going to hedge and say 65. This year's 40 was just too poor and appears to be a little too unlucky to repeat itself. All right. So depending on the types of people in your draft, he may end up becoming a nice sleeper pickup if people are going to leave him till late because of last season or maybe he'll be someone who you want to avoid if people are still drafting him as a 25th overall pick which was his average draft position last year on ESPN next let's get topical here Yesterday was Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Finals, and Tampa Bay pulled off the exciting win. Andre Vasilevsky gets the win in Nets, which might be disappointing for people who have Bishop in their playoff pools. Maybe didn't watch the game and just saw the box score this morning. But we're not going to talk about the goaltending. I want to talk about a player who wasn't really involved. Let's talk about Jonathan Druin, who had a very disappointing season last year, considering a lot of people pegged him as a Calder Trophy candidate going into the year. He was drafted pretty highly in a lot of leagues, but all he was able to provide his owners was 32 points in 70 games, which aren't really relevant numbers from a fantasy hockey perspective. Definitely not the year people were hoping for Druin. Also, he didn't get much time on ice. He averages 13 minutes and 14 seconds on the season overall. And you know, in these playoffs... He's barely played at all. He actually did get into the lineup yesterday and was given only 7 minutes and 52 seconds of ice time. So clearly Jonathan Druin is not being looked at this season as a player expected to make an impact on this Tampa Bay Lightning Stanley Cup run. And you know, it's surprising because he's 20 years old, which is of course very young, but you've got Cedric Paquette, who's only one year older. He scored a goal yesterday. He's playing 14 minutes a game, which is double what Druin got. And like I said, Druin got benched for most of the playoffs. So Brian, my question to you is everyone talks about Druin as this heralded prospect. I remember last year just everyone was talking. We got so excited when he actually got into the lineup finally and we thought maybe he would make a big impact and he didn't. Is this the kind of thing that we should start getting concerned about? You know, if you're in a keeper league and you've pegged Druin as the future for your team, should you be getting concerned that he's not even getting used in the playoffs and that he barely was used last season? Or do you think that this is standard protocol and he's still on track to have a great career? No, I'm not concerned, but I also don't think this is standard protocol at how stubborn the Lightning are being and how stingy they're being about his ice time and how much opportunity he gets. And that'll be a theme in my breakdown. And it's even more curious when you see that a guy like Cedric Paquette is getting the minutes that he is and seeing the competition that he is. Like he's being tossed out against Chicago's best lines and he is failing miserably 
and you wonder why he's in the lineup. If he's there for defensive acumen because he can take on other teams' top lines, he's not doing a very good job of it. And I don't really see what the Lightning see in him that Jonathan Durant might not have. I feel like both players have been pigeonholed early on in their careers for one reason or another, and the Lightning are stubbornly sticking to those pigeonholes. But let's take a look at just Drewen. He had a really disappointing season, like you said, Elon, but it wasn't because of his play on the ice. Our repeated answer with him was all season long, don't worry about Drewen. He's being eased into the lineup by his coach. He's not getting free reign right away. And that's not necessarily his fault. He wasn't being given great opportunities to produce and be noticed. And unfortunately, that showed crystal clear in his stat line. But maybe his stat line wasn't actually as bad as it looked. If you take a look at all rookies over the last three seasons, his points per game mark of just under half a point per game puts him in 14th. Right around rookie seasons from Tyler Toffoli, Nick Bjorkstad, Melker, Evgeny Kuznetsov, Sean Monaghan, and Alexander Barkov. A couple of those guys have gone on to have pretty good sophomore seasons, and even more notable, Duran's rookie numbers were far better than teammate Nikita Kucherov's, although they were lower than Andre Palat and Tyler Johnson's. Yeah, Kucherov is a very interesting comparison because I feel like his season last year was a lot like Druin's this year, right? He was 20 years old and Kucherov only got into 52 games and averaged only 13 minutes a game. So he didn't seem like a guy who was being used very much. And then this year, he got into all the games and he had 64 points to show for it. So a huge jump. I wonder if Druin will be able to mimic that. Obviously, it's more up to the coach, I guess. Yeah, it is up to the coach, and you have to hope that his freedom will increase and his point totals will increase accordingly. And some Lightning fans I trust, including Raw Charges' Kyle Alexander, who appeared on the show earlier this year, they see Druin as a guy who's being held back for no particular reason. In other words, he's as ready as he can possibly be to take on more responsibility, but like I keep saying, he just hasn't had the opportunity yet and I would really expect that to happen next year. We've been talking about him as the guy who was picked behind McKinnon and Barkov, and we thought that he could put up McKinnon-like numbers in his rookie year, and maybe he could have, but he was not given the opportunities that McKinnon was. It doesn't mean he's worse than McKinnon. It's just hard to think that next year he's not going to get the chance to do the same thing. So if you're in a keeper league and you can get somebody who's like, oh man, Druin sucks, his team has no faith in him, they're never going to play him, then see if you can work a deal out, and I'm pretty confident that you're going to be laughing for years to come. I would love to see Druin not 60 in this upcoming season, but we have to keep in mind there are already a lot of capable and entrenched forwards in Tampa's lineup as it is. So Druin's work is still going to be cut out for him. That said, I imagine if Alex Killorn and Ryan Callahan can get big minutes for the Tampa Bay Lightning in 2014-15, then there will be opportunity for Jonathan Drouin to get his own in 2015-16. So remember what you expected from him at the time of last year's fantasy draft? I would honestly keep it about the same. Don't be too discouraged by his rookie season. And it wasn't even that bad. And it's interesting to me how you bring up Alex Killorn as someone who you're saying, oh, well, if Killorn could get the minutes, then Druin obviously could. Do we have to mention, I know we mentioned it on our patron cast recently, but I just want to say it again, like, he's still holding up. Killorn has 17 points in 22 playoff games this year. He's been a key contributor 
to the Lightning, you know, compared to these guys like Paquette and Druin, of course. He's been getting good minutes both in even strength and on the power play. And he's another guy who falls into that category of having a disappointing year last season, only 38 points in 71 games. Brian, do you think that Alex Killorn's going to be able to keep up what he's been doing in the playoffs and improve his numbers from last year, or do you still see him as a point-per-game player? I feel like on the patron cast, you said you still see him as a half point-per-game player, sorry. So do you stick with that as you've been watching more of the playoffs? Yeah, I'm sticking with it. You know how stubborn I am about changing my thoughts on a player based on a playoff performance. And that holds true with Alex Killorn, who, you know, has sort of given me trouble all year long because, you know, he shows up, goes streaking, then cools down and like just bounces back and forth between being relevant and being irrelevant. And a lot of it, I honestly think, depended on his line mates. He did not do a whole lot of scoring away from Sam Cosen Callahan when he was skating with, say, Valtteri Filpula. He also was not a very effective player on the power play, which is, you know, another small sample size. So I know I can't discount what's happening in the playoffs and count what's happening on his power play, but I'm just saying I I don't have a ton of faith in him. And especially with, you know, other players graduating in terms of what they're able to do next year for the Lightning, I still think Killorn is probably best projected as a half point per game guy maybe a little higher like if you want to say give or take I'll give him a couple more points but I'm still not really high on him and I don't think that he should be drafted in most leagues maybe at the top of your watch list after the draft is over but probably not taken with a pick wow well I definitely think you're not going to be getting killer and then because I'm pretty sure after this playoff performance rightly or wrongly he's going to be drafted in most pools and yeah, it's going to be interesting, you know, as we've seen this playoffs and how well Tampa's doing. They have so much depth at this point. It really will depend on who gets into, I guess, their top six. Maybe it's more of a top nine situation. Like, you've got to be confident in Tyler Johnson, who we've talked about to death. Palat, Kucherov, obviously Stamkos. But then when you start talking about guys like Callahan, Philpula, now Druin... Killorn, like some of these guys are going to be in a good situation. Oh, there's Cedric Paquette. Who knows if he's even part of the conversation. But you know, like, it'll be interesting to see who gets the important roles with Tampa next year. And really quick, before we move on to our next player, Brian, what's your cup prediction at this point after two games? Well, on the Facebook group, I said Chicago in five. So they've got to win three in a row now to make that happen. And then uh, somebody pointed out how awful my playoff predictions have been. And they were right. So uh, probably Tampa in seven in that case. Okay, and then just for fun, by the way, I think my playoff predictions are also not great. I did pick the Rangers, who came close, but they weren't able to pull it off in that game seven. I'll say Chicago in six games. Yeah, I still actually think Chicago is going to win. I just feel like I can't possibly be right. Okay, next on the docket, going from a young up-and-coming star to someone who's been a star for a long, long time, but is maybe declining, or maybe it was just an unlucky year. That's what we're here to find out. Patrick Marlowe. We actually got a few requests to talk about some of these Sharks players, and especially Marlowe, including at Ginger Ninja on Twitter, who said, I was wondering if you were going to do a Shark-centric discussion on the next Slumpers episode, Cough Marlowe Cough. So we will talk about Marlowe, and I'm sure Brian will maybe touch on a couple of the other players, but... Let's look. How bad was Patrick Marlowe's season compared to the rest of his career recently? Marlowe ended the season with 57 points in 82 games, which, you know, isn't a disaster. Like, it's not a horrible season. He wasn't a fantasy irrelevant player like Chris Kunitz became near the end of last season. But, you know, compared to his previous years, he had 70 points the year before. 
31 and 48 in the lockout season, so that wasn't very great. But before that, 64, 73, 83, 71. So, you know, you just keep on going back and you keep on seeing great years. So it was a real drop-off last season. And considering the guy is 35 years old, you'd have to expect that at some point he's going to drop off for good. And maybe this is the start of it. He still got good minutes. He still played with good players. We also know that San Jose might be shaking things up, so it'll be interesting just to see where he lands in the lineup next year and who he'll be playing with. But I just want to know for last season, what happened with Marlowe? Like, why did he have such a strong dip? Why did he go from 70 points to 57? Patrick Marlowe, the pride of Aneroid, Saskatchewan, which, if you're not familiar with it, is a special service area under the jurisdiction of the rural municipality of Invergordon. So that's pretty exciting. There's a population of 45. This is where Patrick Marlowe is from, a very small place that got its name because apparently the first survey party lost its aneroid barometer on the present town site, all according to Wikipedia. So This is all very interesting. Yeah, well, what I'm trying to say, Elon, is that he still should be the pride of Aneroid Saskatchewan's 45 residents because, well, I mean, he did have the lowest five-on-five shooting percentage of his career. And yes, he was 35 years old last year, and that could have had a very small bit to do with that. But what we saw was an unreasonably large drop from the success rate that he'd established even just over the last few years. And I would expect him to be able to bounce back pretty reasonably. I guess that's the theme of this episode. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like this huge dive all of a sudden if you're looking at their career trajectory, but it doesn't really fit in in the bigger scheme of things, or at least I hope it doesn't. Let's go back to his shooting percentage, though. It dropped three to four percentage points, which is a a pretty big drop. But even if that drop didn't happen, he still likely wouldn't have stretched his run of consecutive 30 goal seasons to eight in a row. And the reason that he wouldn't have stretched his run of consecutive 30 goal seasons, even if his shooting percentage maintained itself, was because he posted his lowest even strength shot rate since all the way back in 2007, 2008. And that is cause for concern. We're used to seeing his shot rate per 60 minutes translate into about three and a half shots per game. But this year he averaged just fewer than three. And while that might not seem like a huge difference, It's enough to make the difference between him being a 25-goal scorer and being a 30-goal scorer. And yeah, like I said, he's getting older, but again, this shot rate did decline more abruptly than I think it should have. And one reason for this is that for the first time in a long time, Patrick Marlowe was getting hammered in the possession battle at even strength. Over the last little while, he's been used in San Jose as one part of a shutdown line along with Logan Couture, and they've generally been up to the task of taking on other teams' top lines and still managing to do a decent job of controlling play. This year, though, they couldn't handle the matchups that they were seeing. Maybe some of it was their fault, and maybe some of it could be placed on the guys that were sharing the ice with them, but either way, it likely played a part in Marlowe having fewer opportunities to get the puck on net. His overall shot attempts towards the net, or Corsi, fell by two or three for every 60 minutes that he played. On the upside, though, Marlowe was excellent on the power play, and that's where he was able to rescue some of the points that he did lose at even strength. He finished the year ranked 22nd in point production amongst regular forwards on the power play. So where does this all leave us for next year? How can we sort all this out? 
Well, the first thing we can probably count on, like I've already alluded to, is that shooting percentage rebounding. And even if his shot rates don't rebound similarly, even if he doesn't pick those back up to the rates we'd expect, the bump in shooting percentage could still be good enough to get him about six or seven more goals than the mere 19 that he managed this year. And again, that's a huge drop from someone who was able to score 30 goals or more or be on pace for that in seven consecutive seasons. The biggest question mark going into next year, Elon, like you already alluded to, is going to be how he's used next season by the new Sharks head coach, Pete DeBoer. Like I mentioned, Marlowe did not fare well in shutdown role last year. Whether or not he stays in that role or moves away from it could determine how the year goes for him. But in any case, I still don't think he's in a free fall just yet. Yes, he's older. Yes, he's not as good as he was like seven years ago. But I still think a mark like 60 points is a very reasonable floor to expect, and anything on top of that could be gravy for you. In fact, I think 60 might be a little bit conservative. All right, thanks. That was a really detailed analysis. And I hope people aren't thinking that maybe we're sort of beating the same drum with a lot of people. Of course, this list that we're presenting is a curated list. We're coming up with players that we think were especially surprising in how bad their seasons were. And so it's likely that means that they should bounce back moving forward. And I think just like I said about Kunitz, maybe from what you're saying, Marlo's going to be a nice sleeper pick next year if people are just looking one year back. Of course, we'll be keeping close tabs on what the Sharks do with their lineup over the summer. But assuming he could be playing with guys like Pavelski or Couture or Thornton or any of these big superstars, and then he's obviously a great player on his own, you'd expect him to be able to do better than those 57 points. I think 60, like you say, is a nice conservative number. And if you're drafting him around 60-point players, then I think you're doing pretty well in picking up Patrick Marlowe. For sure. If you can get him around the same time as other 60-point players, considering how disappointing a 57-point season was, uh, I think you're in good shape. And the hope, Elon, you mentioned Pavelski. The hope would be that Pavelski and Thornton uh, are the ones who maybe get the tougher assignments going into next year. If you draft Marlowe, that's probably what you're hoping to see. And you're also looking to see who that third line mate is going to be and also how the blue liners are doing behind him. I read a great article on Fear the Finn about Patrick Marlowe and also some of the other players and how their seasons went. And one guy that stood out was Justin Braun. He took a big step forward in 2013-14, and he wasn't able to continue that in 2014-15. And that's relevant because he played a lot of time with Marlowe. And of course, I guess not as relevant to Marlowe, but it'll be interesting to see what San Jose does in their crease for next season since Antti Niemi is an unrestricted free agent. So we'll definitely be doing more Sharks talk as the summer progresses. And once things are kind of, you know, the playoffs are so fun. I want them to keep going. And it was a great game yesterday. But at the same time, I'm kind of excited for them to be over so we could get going with the transactions and getting some new things to discuss on the podcast. Aside from is Alex Killorn going to be able to keep up what he's been doing? And with that, let's move on to the last forward I wanted to talk about this week, a guy who we talked about a lot during the regular season, but I feel like now we have a nice, fresh perspective. Evander Kane. While Patrick Kane is killing it for the Blackhawks, Evander Kane had one of his worst seasons ever before finally getting injured and then getting traded. So let's just take a quick look at the numbers. Kane had 22 points in 37 games. Only 10 goals. And let's not forget, just a few years ago, you know, in 2011-2012, he was a 57-point guy in only 74 games with 30 goals. So he was on pace. He was looking like he was going to be on pace to become a real superstar after his first season 
in Winnipeg. He followed that up with 33 points in 48 games in the lockout shortened season. Then things started to go a little awry, 41 points in 63 games in 2013-2014, but still a 20-goal year in only 63 games. Nothing to sneeze at, but things were not going well last year. As you may recall, we talked about on the podcast, he was playing on the third line with the likes of Thorburn and Lowry and Halashuk. I don't even remember exactly, but guys like that, he wasn't playing with the Wheelers and the Littles that you'd like your fantasy asset on Winnipeg to be playing with. Next year, he's going to Buffalo. And the one thing we always say about Buffalo is this is a team that you don't want players on because they don't score. They don't score goals. But of course, maybe now people are starting to think, oh, Buffalo's rebuilding. But how much can they really change in just one season? Brian, this is like a big, tough one, I think. I think this one is going to be one of the more difficult players to project for next season. But I'm going to ask you to do it. What do you think people should expect out of Evander Kane next year on the Sabres? And maybe you could also touch on moving forward as a keeper asset. Right, sure. And also, I will get to the team aspect in about a minute or two. But first... Let's just take a look at Evander Kane as an individual. And my general advice on him right now is just forget last season happened. It's not something I often say, but I'm saying it here. Between off-ice distractions, on-ice distractions, injuries, trade rumors, money phones, I forgive Evander Kane's 49-point pace that he established in the 37 games he played in the 2014-15 season. Yes, he gets amnesty for a 49-point pace. Let's all just move on and remember to look at Evander Kane for who I think he really is. And to do that, let's take a look at the last three years prior to this most recent one. And over that time, Evander is the league leader, the league leader in shots per 60 minutes. And that's a result of some fantastic possession numbers. He's also second in overall shot attempts behind only Alex Ovechkin. Even while playing significant time on Winnipeg's third line last year, he was still able to tilt the ice in his team's favor. And Elon, you mentioned who some of his line mates were and that he was able to do that is a real accomplishment. In terms of point production, he's a top 50 forward at even strength for sure. And that puts him in the same class as guys like Logan Couture and Rick Nash and Anza Kopitar. And there is added value in Evander Kane because so many of his points come from goals, which are often counted for more points in fantasy leagues or are harder to get a hold of. He ranks 22nd in the league amongst regular forwards in the span between 2011 and 2014. He's likely going to fall lower in this year's drafts than he ever will again, and it's up to you to draft him where you see fit depending on how badly you want him and how badly you think your opponents might want him. I do think he still belongs in your list of top 50 forwards, And in the slightly more exclusive group, if you're looking at goal scorers, as for Buffalo, he's going to have a ton of opportunity there for years to come, though I am particularly interested in seeing how he's going to do as the guy on the power play there, as he's really struggled to convert with the man advantage in his career to date. That's been a weird little wrinkle. His high watermark for power play points is 9 in a season, and that came back in 2011-2012. So being the guy in Buffalo could definitely be a positive But being the guy in Buffalo is also concerning because no Sabre has scored more than 46 points in a season in the last three years. But the difference between Buffalo next season and Buffalo over the last three years is that I think they are starting to turn this ship around. I think they're done with the tank job. 
They have some pieces that they can move forward with. They're ready to start putting together a competitive NHL club. They have a coach in place that's also going to help things in Dan Bausma. And so hopefully Evander Kane is going to lead the Sabres in scoring with more than 46 points. The only other red flag worth mentioning, Elon, is that he's still recovering from injury. So just putting that out there. But all in all, I wouldn't be afraid to draft Evander Kane. I feel like in many drafts, he's going to be that best available guy who gets passed over for several rounds. And there's definitely some risk involved for sure. But I don't think there's as much risk involved as you may have been led to believe. So pull the trigger when you feel comfortable, when you think it's appropriate, and enjoy seeing him on the stat sheet for a large percentage of Buffalo's goals. I'm hoping for sure that he cracks 50 points, which if he was with Winnipeg, that would be a no-brainer. But again, we're looking at a new and evolving Buffalo team. I would love to see him in the range of 55 to 60 points. But again, I think the offseason is going to give us a good idea of exactly what this team will look like in October and how that will position Evander Kane as a point-producing forward in 2015-2016. Yeah, it's very intriguing stuff. Like, of course, one thing to worry about is plus-minus. That's always a big problem on Buffalo. And they do have an enticing-looking potential top six, right? If they draft Eichel, they have Reinhardt, Kane will be there. There's still Ennis and Molson, and Johan Larson had a really nice run at the end of last year. So you could see some offense potentially from Buffalo, but I still don't see any names on defense to get overly excited about. And of course, in net, that might be a problem as well. So I would be a little bit concerned about the plus minus still, but I do agree with you that maybe Buffalo won't be the worst team at scoring this year like they were before. Yeah, well, the big reason that they've been so bad at scoring is that they've been comically and historically terrible at possessing the puck. And Evander Kane comes in, is somebody who's really noted for his ability to drive play. We'll see how that fits in with the Sabres this year. And I'm going to mention Dan Bausma again. I think that's going to be helpful. I think having a good, experienced coach who has had success and knows how to put some good structure in place is going to help the Sabres maybe not necessarily be a positive possession team, but not be a total laughing stock that you need to make like new charts and graphs for to be able to see them fit in compared to the rest of the league well for buffalo fans i hope you're right because it's been a long struggle for the savers it's been you know a theme of keeping carlson since obviously since we've started it's been the buffalo savers suck show but hopefully starting next year we could start to talk about another team and maybe we could talk about the savers being a team that's improving maybe they'll be the florida panthers of next season where we'll be all excited about all these new players on this team that we used to never look for for fantasy value So that's it for forwards and pretty much it for the show. But before we sign off, let's just name a few goalies. We'll do it a bit quicker than usual. But Brian, there are three goalies last year who had a really big dip in their overall career numbers. I'm talking about Jonathan Bernier, Jimmy Howard, and Ryan Miller. Respectively, the save percentages for these three goalies last year were 9-12, 9-11, and 9-10. And compare that to their career averages, Bernier is an average 9-16 save percentage goaltender, Miller 9-15, and Jimmy Howard 9-16. So these are three goalies that you should have been able to depend on, you would think, going into the season that they would give you pretty decent numbers, but then they all kind of tanked, and they all have really difficult situations going into next year because all of them have backup goalies that maybe are nipping at the heels. Maybe Bernier not as much, but Reimer's there. But then you have 
have Ryan Miller. He's got Eddie Lack, who took over when Miller got injured and did pretty well. Then you have Jimmy Howard, who even lost some playoff starts to Peter Mrazek. So going into next year, I'm curious to know your thoughts. Are any of these three goalies still worth keeping at the same level they were going into last year in terms of fantasy value? And on the flip side, are any of them people who you think it's time to completely write off? And who's in the middle? What do you think about Bernier, Miller, and Howard? So all three of these goalies have one thing in common, and that's that the last two seasons have both been worse than the one that preceded it. So two years ago was worse than three years ago. And last year at even strength, they also had a poorer save percentage than the year before. What does this mean? Well, I mean, we've been banging the drum for a while about Ryan Miller saying the end is near, the end is near, like a crazy guy on the corner. And the difference between us and that crazy guy is that we're probably right. Miller is on like a really steady decline. You know, it started around 2011, 2012, and sort of the gaps in what he's been able to do from year to year, the negative gaps have become bigger and bigger. And so I expect that to continue. And I actually expect his opportunity to decrease, especially with Eddie Lack coming on so strong towards the end of the year. As for Howard and Bernier, it's a little harder because, I mean, Howard has been up and down a little bit in terms of what we think he is, and this year was a pretty big down year for him. He had one of the lower adjusted even strength save percentages of his career, and again, that's a stat you can get over on War on Ice. But if you look at the last three years as a whole, he is just barely within the top 10 in even strength save percentage, which is something. But I think a lot of Red Wings fans especially were thinking that he could be in the top five by this point. Bernier finds himself a little lower down at 15 on that list. And I feel like both, you know, have seasons that depend largely on how their teams do. Detroit, you've got a new situation with a new head coach for the first time in forever. And Mrazek, like you said, is sort of nipping at Howard's heels, but I don't think he's that close. Keep in mind, Jimmy Howard is just entering the third year of a six-year contract, and I don't think the Red Wings are about to give up on him, and nor should they. I still have some faith in him, but should you be drafting him as high as you might have last year, as high as you would have after one of his up years? Maybe not. Maybe he slips a little further, although we do know that in keeper leagues especially, goalies are golden and very hard to get a hold of and often overvalued because of, you know, like market supply and demand, whatever, all those functions. Jonathan Bernier, he's got Reimer behind him, and there was sort of this bit of murmuring around Toronto last year that maybe he was not their golden boy anymore, and his numbers would suggest that Maybe he shouldn't be, you know, being sort of a middling NHL goaltender over the last three years. If you look at all those years together, he certainly has had some big moments. But again, now Toronto has a new coach and a new coach that plans to be there for a while. You wonder if he's about to make his choice. And maybe that choice is going to be a tandem. So Jonathan Bernier, you could draft him in previous years knowing that he was going to be the guy. He was brought in by like the president or whatever. And now you don't have that assurance anymore, at least right now. So both goaltenders are in a little bit more tenuous situations than they were previously. I like Howard more than Bernier, and I expect both to bounce back somewhat. I don't think they're as bad as last season would suggest. However, they're going to have to pick it up and pick it up soon for us to still be able to continue having faith in their ability to both be top 10 goaltenders for the length of their careers. And yeah, I guess talking about these three guys just really makes it clear how valuable 
some of the other goalies in the league are the ones who you could depend on to be the starters on their teams. Because at this point, you know, how can you really know which goalie of Lack or Miller, Howard or Morazic or Bernier or Reimer, you know, like... It's almost like now all six of them become a little bit toxic because you don't know for sure who's going to be the one getting the games. So, you know, when you have a guy like Pecorine or Tuka Rask or one of these guys that's for sure the number one goalie, just makes him all the more value as that type of player becomes so rare in fantasy hockey. And it's going to be very interesting next year. And we'll do our whole goalie smorgsborg or whatever you call it. Smorgoliesborg. Smorgoliesborg. We're going to do that at some point in the summer where we'll really break down what we think the goalie tiers are for next year. This was just a tease. One thing I'll say before we're done teasing is just that there's been a lot of movement like in how goalies rank in even strength save percentage over the last three years. Like I would not have expected Steve Mason to be up in seventh. Craig Anderson is over in fourth. You've got Pecorine fell to 13th. There's been a lot of changes and it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out, Elon. Like you said, who is number one is probably going to be the biggest deciding factor because there seems to be an ever-decreasing gap between talent level and NHL goalies and there's less and less to pick from. So yeah, their status on their team matters a lot and sometimes it's not even sorted out until like October and November, but we will dig into it as much as we can as the preseason rolls around. And that'll do it for another summer series episode of Keeping Carlson. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. We know that maybe fantasy hockey isn't at top of mind, but you guys are the ones who are going to be ahead when it comes to next season because you're already starting to think about the values of different players, and we appreciate you listening to the show. Of course, we always appreciate any feedback, so if you enjoyed the show, if you have any suggestions of what you'd like to hear about for the next couple of Summer Series episodes before the preseason finally rolls around, tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. Also, I won't beat the patron drum this week, but if you're interested in becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson or want to know what the heck I'm talking about, check out KeepingCarlson.com slash patron. But that's going to do it. Like I said, no more rambling. Let's cue that outro music and Brian read us the credits. Okay, this episode was supported by our patrons and was researched with help from Fear the Fin, Pensburg, War on Ice, Puckalytics, Behind the Net, Wikipedia, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Wow, the first Wikipedia mention that I could remember in the credits. I guess that was to look up Patrick Marlowe's hometown. Aneroid, Saskatchewan. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. And Brian, I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Talk to you then, Elon. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sand.